the Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm Jason Reed, and as usual, I'm joined by co-hosts Rick and Lee. This week, we are talking about progress. But before we get into that, let's make some progress in getting our drink on and get our drink orders. <laughs> so, Rick, what are you having and what are you ranting or raving about? I'm going to go with one of my spring standbys. I would like a gimlet, please. I don't want Welgin, but, you know, I don't want the top shelf either. <laughs> As we're recording this, Harry Belafonte recently passed away. And so I am raving about Harry Belafonte. Shake, 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 Sinora, shake your body liner. I had a period in my life where I had his Live at Carnegie Hall album memorized, including his audience banter and so on. (laughs) I think if you listen to a lot of his music, you can't help but dance and be happy. So I miss you already, Harry Belafonte, but thank you. And man, he had a great run, 96 years old. Mm. Lee, what are you having and what are you ranting or raving about? I think I'm just going to have two fingers of Benchmark bourbon today and... I am actually raving. This is going to be an unusual rave for me, quite domestic, but I am raving about Dawn Power Wash. (laughs) (laughs) This is actually relevant to our topic today. I don't know that any greater scientific progress has been made than in whatever (laughs) happens for us to get Dawn Power Wash. I mean, that stuff is like a bottle of magic. So if you don't use it at home, I really encourage everyone, go out to your grocery store, get some Dawn Power Wash. It literally cleans anything. (laughs) Jason, what about you? What are you drinking and what are you ranting or raving about? Well, it's been raining like a Kurosawa film around here recently, (laughs) and that always puts me in the mood for some hot sake, so I'm going to have that. And I, too, am going to rave about Harry Belafonte, but about the actor, Uh. not the musician. Shake, 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 Sinora, shake your body liner. Specifically, the two films he did in 1959 that are often underrated, Odds Against Tomorrow and The Word, The Flesh, and The Devil, which are both amazing films. They're very different. One's kind of a noir heist film. The other's kind of a post-apocalyptic thriller that's often credited to being based on Mary Shelley's Last Man, but it seems to borrow a lot from Du Bois's short story, The Comet. Hmm. doesn't get talked hmm. about it enough. And the amazing thing about both these films, and this ties into our topic too, not so much The Miracle of Dawn, but in terms of the question of progress, is that if you see these films now, you'll be surprised at how much they tried to address the question of race back in 1959 when they were both made. Mm. And sometimes we forget about that because sometimes our image of the 50s is all kind of like leave it to Beaver-esque. We think of this sort of whitewashed 50s where no one was talking about race. But that these films exist suggests that people were trying to do it. And Harry Belafonte was really pushing that and one of the many reasons why he'll be sorely missed. I haven't seen either of those films, so I'm putting both of them on my list right now. Yeah, thank you for that. So anyways, progress. Or is this all about Dawn? Are we doing a Dawn? Is this this an infomercial? (laughs) Is this all going to be about Dawn? Dawn, call us. (laughs) Recently, while washing my dishes with Dawn Power Wash. (laughs) (laughs) No, recently I was going through my news feed, as I do usually in the morning and then again in the evening. And in my news feed, there was this article about four hard problems in philosophy 
and their possible solutions. And so I clicked on it and I'm reading it. And my first question was, is philosophy actually about solving problems at all? <laughs> and then when I thought about, is philosophy about solving problems, it led me to think about progress and whether there is progress in philosophy, whether there should be progress in philosophy. And then that led me to start thinking about progress in general as a notion. And then in a weird sort of way, I connected this up with the Supreme Court majority opinion in the case Shelby County versus Holder. And this was a voting rights case in which the Supreme Court famously struck down Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. And they held that there's a requirement that certain jurisdictions get a preclearance if they're going to make changes in their voting laws. They said that they're striking this down as unconstitutional because, and now I'm quoting, nearly 50 years after the passage of the Voting Rights Act, things have changed dramatically. And they go ahead and point to progress. They say blatantly discriminatory evasions of federal decrees are rare. Bullshit. Minority candidates hold offices at unprecedented levels. The tests and devices blocking voting access have been forbidden. Bullshit. In other words, progress has been made on the issue of race in the United States, and we no longer need one of the most important provisions of the Voting Rights Act. In general, philosophers have argued that we humans have made great moral progress. Some other philosophers, I have Hegel in mind here, argue that history is essentially progress, a progress toward greater freedom. Others argue toward more comfortable lives, equality for all. Clearly, I think there has been progress in medicine, in biology, in physics, computer science, and the constitution of Dawn dishwashing detergent. <laughs> so there's a good side and a bad side. And so the question is, progress, the march toward the good or menace to society? So I mentioned in my introduction obvious regions of human knowledge and human life that have had clear progress, like medicine is a great one. There are diseases that no longer kill us or make us suffer. Humans are living longer. In computer science, our computers are obviously much faster, which makes the porn watching experience much more enjoyable. <laughs> and cars are much safer. So that all sounds really great. But I think there are downsides to each of these. I'm wondering if there are downsides to each of these, can we really call any of these things progress? Well, I think for me, the question of progress, when I think of it, I think there aren't just specific things happening in specific fields, but there's some overarching logic that underlies all the different fields. Like these things are all part of the same thing that encompasses technology, society, morals, ethics, and so on. That's what I think of when I think of progress. You know, part of the issue is that while there is clearly, as you point out, some good things in some of these areas, although one could also mention that there are some old diseases coming back, that cars getting safer seems to happen at the expense of pedestrians because as cars get higher, especially trucks and SUVs, they do more damage and make it harder to see, especially little people. 
Children, I meant. Or me. <laughs> so each of these things has some, I can't use another word, some progress has been made. But the thing that I'm increasingly skeptical is that there is some overarching logic to all these different things. I mean, I think that progress, as you point out in the beginning, it's a meta-narrative, to use that language of Jean-Francois Lyotard, that we don't just think about what's happening in this specific area, but we think about all things unified into one area, and that area is in this march of progress. And I think it's interesting to try and think our way out of that without lapsing into the other tendency, which is everything's getting worse, you know, fall from some nostalgic golden age or something else, and to try and think specific goods and bads of each historical moment and each historical transformation. Sorry, I sound like Kamala Harris for a second. (laughs) (laughs) In philosophy, we talk about things being teleological, coming from the Greek word telos, which is a kind of end or purpose or goal. And I think we can talk about progress being made, as Jason said, in one area, moving towards one particular goal, and that goal being at odds with progress in another area, with another goal. And absent some meta-telos, right, some overarching goal that covers all areas in which change happens, I'm not sure that that problem is avoidable, that it's going to be the case, that progress in one area, you know, progress, for example, in developing COVID vaccines is obviously interfering with the progress of the mutation of COVID itself. So we can definitely talk about those things being at odds. I'm not sure that there is an overarching good there. I mean, I think this is where it gets more complicated when we talk about, well, has history progressed? Has humanity progressed? Well, certainly in some areas and certainly not in other areas. But what would it mean for progress of humanity to happen that, as we can already obviously see, that wouldn't mean a sort of regress of something else like the maintenance of the earth? Yeah. When I teach medieval philosophy, students often really chuckle at some of the positions that medieval philosophers hold about certain things. And when I push them on what's so hilarious about this, the answer is some form of progress. Like, oh, they were dumber back then and they thought the world was flat. By the way, people, they did not think the world was flat. (laughs) They knew that the world was round. But the students seem to think that not only have we had advances in individual areas, medicine and physics and technology, but that also in some general way that I'm not really sure what they have in mind, but in some general way, there has been progress and we are better. That leads me to wonder, is the notion of better part of progress? So Lee, you gave the example of the coronavirus mutating and becoming a more successful virus, right? The ability to spread and infect more people and therefore keep itself alive and propagate. Would we call that progress? Because I think in some sense, we think that doesn't make anything better because we can't help but look at the world anthropocentrically. Mm -hmm. So we wouldn't say that's better. And therefore, I think we don't use the word progress there. Am I wrong that there is a tendency to think of progress in relation to some notion of better? Things have gotten better. I mean, you and I don't use the word progress there relative to the coronavirus, but I mean, a virologist would, wouldn't they? Well, I don't know. None of my friends are virologists. (laughs) (laughs) It reminds me of an Adorno quote that I half remember in which Adorno said, there is a progress from the slingshot to the atom bomb, right? 
you correct me. Uh, this is one of those like quotes I vaguely remember from grad school. <laughs> and to some extent, I don't think we would like to think about the sense in which we've gotten much better at killing people on a massive scale, right? From the slingshot to the atom bomb, it's become more effective. But I don't think I would want to call that progress. Some people might. It goes back to the question about the virus, like something becoming better at what it does, more efficient, more capable, is not necessarily progress. It seems to me the notion of progress suggests that those effects are necessarily for some overall betterment, that we don't usually think of weapons getting better as progress or surveillance getting better as progress. We usually like to think of it as getting better at things that we consider to be desirable, like curing diseases. Like even in the technological realm, it seems to be like we use the term progress to refer specifically to those things that are in some sense connected to some idea about human life and thriving and not that we get better at killing, for example. I'm not sure that I'm totally convinced by this just quite yet, because it does seem to me that we can recognize progress that is not good for us. And I also think that we can recognize progress that is more or less value neutral. Like, for example, if something involves some kind of a process, I don't know, like a flower growing, we could say, well, it's progressed. It's not a seed anymore. It's a plantling. And then finally, it's a flower. And that's just value neutral. That's a process that's going to happen. And there are earlier stages in the process and there are later stages in the process. But progressing from earlier to later stages is progressing. So I'm not sure that I think necessarily that progress has to have a value. But I mean, just going back to what we started with, it does seem like in different areas that progress that might have one value in one area might have an opposite value in another area. Yeah. And maybe there's not necessarily a sense of value attached to progress, but there definitely is a sense of completion or something like an end. So in a way, if my flower starts growing and then a dog comes and pees on it and the next day it's dead, I wouldn't say it's progressed toward death. Although I think sometimes we do say the disease has progressed, but there the goal is not death. There's some sort of notion of what it is for this disease to be what it is, what it is for the flower to be what it is, and so on. And so those ends, and philosophers have known this for centuries, those ends can and most frequently do come into conflict with one another. Mm -hmm. Therefore, what's progress toward one end might be detrimental to the progress toward a different end. Let me float this idea. Might it be the case that we have to already know what the end is in order to say something that is progress? So if I'm driving to Chicago, you know, as I'm passing through Indiana, I'm going to think I've made some progress in this trip, right? But if I'm just going out for a drive one day and I'm not going anywhere, mm. I don't think at any point in the drive I would say I've made progress. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah. think that's true that progress always presupposes some vision of what one's progressing towards. But I think that takes me back to what Rick was saying a couple of minutes ago. There does seem to be a way in which progress is sometimes invoked by people where they don't mean necessarily progress towards some end, but they mean like worthy end. It's sort of a narcissism of the mm. present. Like we believe ourselves to have progressed beyond all of that, right? We're not really positing an end. In terms of a process, we're just saying, hey, look at us. We don't think this anymore. We don't do this anymore. There has been progress. And it seems mm. to me there are two different notions of progress. Progress where we're envisioning an end 
And the progress that is often talked about in the everyday sort of lazy sense of progress, lazy progress, lazy relativism, <laughs> um, in the sense where we just say like, oh, we're better than all that now, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. In which we assume that we're the end. The biologist Stephen Jay Gould used to call those just so stories, and he was critical of them in evolutionary biology. And he was particularly angry at social evolution and behavioral evolution. Evolution. In other words, people who say it seems as if non-monogamy is on the rise, then all of a sudden we go back to early hominids on the African savanna and we make up a story that leads to who we are and where we are right now. Gould's point about evolution, I think, goes for history as well. That's not actually how it worked. There's not a direct line from then to now. It's more like a bush, and we happen to be on the end of one of the branches, but only by taking our perspective as the end can we look back and say that there is progress. Because there's been a lot of dead ends all along the way that no one ever takes up. That goes for history as well. You know, Adorno used to talk about the charnel house of history, so a slaughterhouse, that history is a great slaughterhouse, precisely because we could only say there's a straight line and name that progress when we both take ourselves at the end and take where we are as itself good. Mm -hmm. I also think that that's true at the beginning of projects. I mean, progress makes sense at the end of a project, evaluating it in some way, but also is helpful for setting oneself projects. I need to know where moving forward is. Yeah. But then, not to get too Heideggerian on this, I'm the least Heideggerian of anyone, I think. But we have to have a contest about that. I'm not, ready to, I'm not ready to cede that point right now, but go ahead. Choose your weapons. <laughs> but I think you're right, Lee, that talking about progress is always inserted within this idea of a project. Like, I'm doing something, I'm accomplishing something, I'm going somewhere. But the problem with that is that once I have a project, everything I look at is either helpful or hurtful or neutral to my project. Mm -hmm. And so now I start looking at everything from the perspective of my own project. And hence, we go from a slingshot to an atom bomb. Yeah, just getting back to what Jason was saying earlier, I'm still trying to think of instances in which we would use progress where what the thing is progressing towards is not a good so I think that we could say, for example, and we do say that this country is progressing towards totalitarianism, mm. which obviously I think for the record on tape, I think totalitarianism <laughs> is bad, but, but I would say that progress has been made towards this end. I'm shocked that you laid down that you're against totalitarianism. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's a good point. And that affirms the earlier point you made, Lee, namely that it's not necessarily about a good or something that is a value, but rather moving towards some goal or some end or some aim. Right. And bringing that closer and closer to something like completion. And then we could mark progress. Right. So I might say that I obviously think totalitarianism is bad. So when I'm talking to people who agree with me, I would say this country is regressing. I would not say mm. it's progressing towards totalitarianism. But, you know, Steve Bannon and his buddies are probably having the same conversation and saying that they're progressing. Yeah, for sure. 
That reminds me of something that Caleb Kane kept referring to when he talked about the rejection of the Enlightenment. And I think you're right that Steve Bannon would say the more that the Enlightenment could be rejected, the more progress we're making. And that we, so-called progressives, are actually the ones who are regressing back to something disastrous. There was this recent, not recent, it was about 10 years ago, but this paper that the Cato Institute put out about human progress in which they said human progress is not inevitable, uneven, or indisputable. And I think that that's basically what we're getting to here is that progress in one area is not going to be progress in another area. Obviously, progress is not inevitable that, you know, we're in this bush and things happen just so, but also the results of those progresses are going to be unevenly distributed. Yeah. William Gibson, the science fiction writer, said the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. Yeah. And and I think that's a related issue. But that, I think, gets to the point that not only is progress related to some goal or aim or end, but it also is related to who gets to choose that end, for whom is that end worth working toward. And so I refer back to the Supreme Court's majority decision in Shelby County, where they say, look, we've made remarkable progress in the issue of race and racism in the United States in the last 50 years. And I look around me and I'm like, you know, says who? Like, <laughs> where? And then, you know, they point to, well, minority candidates hold office at unprecedented levels. And that shows that we've progressed beyond racism in the United States and we don't need it anymore. Well, of course, the levels are going to be unprecedented because the levels used to be zero. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's like what Malcolm X says. If you stick a knife, you know, six inches in my back and pull it out three, that's not progress. <laughs> <laughs> And so it's about the precedent. If a precedent is so racist, then anything is going to look like progress from that. Hey, we couldn't hear you while you were shouting into your headphones. So if you have feedback or suggestions for future topics, or if you just want to pick a fight with one of our co-hosts, or in fact all of us, Just visit us at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and click on the interactive page. If you want to belly up to the bar with us, at least virtually, you can always email an audio clip to hotelbarpodcast at gmail.com. If it's interesting, we're going to steal it from you. If it's not, we'll send you our Venmo handles and you can virtually buy us a drink. Jason, you're quoting Malcolm X about the knife that is six inches in my back, and when you remove it three inches, that's not progress. It forces us to consider how the notion of progress functions politically. Obviously, I would argue that the Supreme Court saying there has been progress on race and racism in the United States is not a legal conclusion. It's not a scientific conclusion. I think it's actually a political conclusion. And for those who want to say that the Supreme Court is above politics, this is yet another piece of evidence that they are not. And so this goes back to the question of who gets to decide what is progress. And that always, for me, is a political question. It's a question of power. It's a question of privilege. To put it bluntly, 
the victors get to tell the story. I think in this sense, the Supreme Court is telling the story of progress, even though the knife is only three inches out of the back. Yeah, I kind of want to start with a little bit of a devil's advocate argument here, which is that, of course, progress has been made since Jim Crow, for example, in race relations in the United States. I think what we're really objecting to in the Shelby County versus Holder decision is how much progress has been made. Because effectively what the Supreme Court was saying was that so much progress has been made that this project of combating racism is done. We're done with it. We don't have to do it anymore. Take a victory lap. Yeah, right. (laughs) And that much progress has not been made. And I mean, I hear the same thing when it comes to sexism. People say, well, you know, you don't have to stay at home. You can get a job. You can be president. And, you know, I'm like, (laughs) right, just like all the other women presidents (laughs) since we got the right to vote. So you see what I'm saying? that it is not so much about has progress been made or has progress not been made, but where do we situate that progress within whatever project that we're engaging? But this to me is one of the worries about throwing the term progress around, because in some sense, I feel like when someone says, well, we've made so much progress removing racism from our electoral process that we don't need the Voting Rights Act anymore, we're fine without it, that they're using the label progress is a move to end the conversation. We don't need to talk about this anymore because Obama was elected president, so we're done. The label progress there is both saying, look how good we have become, but it's also saying, and therefore we don't need to worry about this anymore. Stop talking about it. But I guess what I'm trying to say is I think your beef with the Supreme Court is not with their evaluation. Progress has been made. It's with their conclusion. With their conclusion and with the markers they use to point to that progress, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, clearly it's better that lynchings don't happen anymore or rarely happen. But less lynchings are still lynchings. Still lynchings, but one could say progress has been made. But on the other hand, one could say, okay, so we've replaced lynchings by deaths at the hand of police violence or Mm. people of color getting shot on porches or in driveways and so on. Or in violence against the incarcerated. And violence against the incarcerated, for sure. And so then the question is, okay, not so many people hanging from trees anymore, but was the tree part the bad part? There again, if you're going to claim progress Now we have to suddenly fight over what are the measures of that, Mm -hmm. and are they the appropriate measures? I think one of the other things that the Supreme Court decision raises is the relationship between overall social progress and individual exceptions, I would call them, right? The sort of Obama became president, racism is over narrative. I think a lot of people are thinking about this issue now, like Tewo's book, Leak Capture, Chantal Jacquet's Transclass book, about how we can think together both the creation of individual exceptions and the perpetuation of systemic structural forms of racism and exclusion, and how, to some extent, those individual exceptions, precisely because they can be heralded as like, look at what this individual has done. Isn't this issue over? Time to stop thinking about it. Let's move on. In some sense, while they're heralded as emblems of progress, they actually function as figures of regression to make sure that nothing more is done and that the issue is no longer addressed, right? The sort of once Obama's elected, you don't need to think about racism anymore. Yeah, and it's really ironic that that's the argument in the Shelby County versus Holder case because, of course, 
yeah, Obama was elected, but what does that do for black people in Shelby County, Alabama? Right, right. exactly. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And also in the Alabama state legislature, where they've been gerrymandered out of being elected to the state legislature, which means they're gerrymandered out of the ability to end gerrymandering in the state in the first place. And so I think that's right. But this then raises the question that, Lee, I think you wanted to reject earlier on, namely the point Jason made that progress, if we're going to talk about it in this sense, has to be a kind of holistic notion that we can't say progress has been made in one area when there are obvious other areas related or connected in which either no progress has been made or things maybe have gotten worse. And so one might say we haven't progressed in the United States because, for example, women are still paid 70-some cents for every dollar that men are paid. We haven't made progress because the representation of minority communities in electing representatives is reduced by gerrymandering, and so it's not a sufficiently democratic process. We haven't progressed because we still have, as a nation, imperialistic tendencies and incredible military. We haven't progressed because we still have nuclear weapons. We haven't progressed because we're still driving the destruction of our planet. And so I'm wondering, would a general moral progress, like we become better humans, is that required in order for us to talk about progress at all? I don't think it's required in order for us to talk about progress at all. I mean, I definitely think we can talk about progress locally without it being effective in a more general sense. So, you know, I might say people in the state of California or New York or anywhere else have made a lot of progress in, for example, workers' rights. While here in Tennessee, we haven't, or here in the nation, we haven't. Let's look to those people as models of progressive politics. So, yeah, I don't think that it has to apply to everyone to be recognized as progress. Though it is interesting to me that a number of issues that would be called progressive issues or values that progressives tend to hold. So better treatment of workers, women's right to healthcare decisions about their own bodies. Universal healthcare. Universal healthcare. Ending racial gerrymandering of state legislatures and therefore our Congress. Maybe getting rid of the Electoral College and ending the fucking gerrymandering of our entire nation that is the (laughs) Electoral College. Progressives tend to hold all of these together. You know, this is a notion from Catholic moral thought, but in a sort of whole cloth morality kind of way. Yeah, we could have progress in individual places or on some of these issues, but we're not really there at completion. We haven't reached the end until all of these have been achieved. And I think one could come up with a similar set of issues on this regressive or reactionary side, right? That they tend to hold all of these at the same time. I think that tapestry of issues that you just noted that progressives seem to consistently hold brings up another issue that I really wanted to ask you guys about, namely how it is that we got to a point where the right in this country articulates that progress is bad, like being progressive is bad. This reminds me a lot of the whole Antifa thing. Like, at what point do you have to spell out to someone that Antifa stands for anti-fascist? So if you think Antifa is bad, you are pro-fascism, right? Like, I don't get these arguments. How do you form a political platform on which 
progressing is bad. Well, clearly the notion is that it's a false claim to progress, right? Jason earlier referred to other stories about history that there was a golden age and we declined. And I think that's the rights position, is that there was a golden age. And what this so-called progress is doing is actually pushing us into a decline away from what we once were in this golden age. Right. But just, you know, rhetorically, why not just redefine progress? Why be (laughs) anti-woke? Why be (laughs) pro-sleep? Right. Right? Like, Why not just say that there are different facts to wake up to or something like that? I don't get this rhetoric of the right these days. It's like, anti-Antifa, anti-progressives, anti-woke. It just seems so backwards. I mean, it seems like quite literally the definition of what being regressive means. I mean, next thing you know, they're going to be like anti-Don Power Wash. And at that point, I'm just going to move to Canada. (laughs) (laughs) We've just lost the plot at that point. How do you wash your Yeah, but if I could show that Don Power Wash is wrapped up in the basement of a pizza parlor and drinking the blood of infants, then... Then I could tell a narrative in which it's better to be anti-Dawn Power Wash. I mean, Dawn Power Wash may very well be made out of the blood of infants. I don't know. (laughs) Well, you did say it was magic. (laughs) It is magic. There's definitely some stem cells in there, I think. I think there is a way in which sometimes a certain amount of progress creates the possibility of a certain fantasy of regression. Like I'm thinking about the anti-vax movement, especially the anti-vax movement pre-COVID, in which if you don't see diseases like polio around, then suddenly it becomes possible to say, these vaccinations don't seem like they're such a big deal. They seem more harmful. We don't really need them. I mean, I really did think at one point that, and here's me being naive and progressive and believing in progress, mm-hmm. I really thought that COVID was going to be the end of the anti-vax movement. Well, yeah, me I too. thought as soon as people saw an actual pandemic, that all that stuff would go away. And instead, the exact opposite happened. But I do think some ideals of regression are themselves made possible by progress. Like I think all these online trad life, people trying to hark back to an earlier age is only made possible. Like once society becomes productive enough, you can then move to your little, you know, fantasy farm and pretend that you can go back to the earth and ignore the fact that you're using technology and using Dawn Power Wash and so on. (laughs) You can entertain us going back to the past. And there is a strange way in which a certain kind of progress makes possible a certain kind of fantasy of reaction. Yeah. And I think a tricky thing is trying to figure out a way, as I said at the beginning, like to make sense of what's happening without relying on the two big meta narratives of progress or regression. Clearly something is happening right now. And I was just thinking about this the other day. Like I remember back in 2008 when Obama got elected for the first time, my father, he lived in San Francisco at the time. He took the sign that was up at the polling place the next day when Obama was elected, a sign that said the rules in English, Spanish, Mandarin, etc. And he had it framed because he was so happy about the Obama election. Mm. Like He thought that this sign showed the kind of America that he wanted to live in, an America of multiple different people. And you know, I asked him where that framed picture was recently. And he was like, yeah, I don't really have that up anymore. Because it's hard <laughs> to put that up in the Trump era. But it's hard to make sense of the relationship between those two moments 
I think at that point, narratives of progress or regression just fail us. And trying to understand the intersection of progressive transformation and reactionary reaction, I think these meta-narratives of progress or reaction make it sometimes difficult for us to understand the actual combination of forces that define any given moment. Mm -hmm. I agree that there's always a specific juncture. Things move in one direction or another at a specific juncture, but the narrative of progress or reaction is something that's laid over the top of something that actually is going on. It made me think of our discussion recently about the university, namely in the notion of book bannings, which are now going on in many states. That seems to me to be a march against progress or a march away from progress and an actual outright denial, right? Because why would I ban books if I don't want to stop the dissemination of positions, knowledge, truth, discoveries, and so on. And this anti-progressivism, I think, goes hand in hand with attempts in, I think it started actually in Wisconsin, but then most recently in Florida and Texas and South Dakota, I believe, but it could be North Dakota, to rein in universities in general, to get rid of tenure, to forbid certain aspects of the curriculum. That all seems to me part and parcel of this anti-progressive movement in general and a proud anti-progressive move. But you know, of course, that the other side would say that that exact same thing that you're saying about banning books is what they're going to say about cancel culture. Right. Right. That this is anti-progressive, that you're just not letting people speak. You just don't want the free market of ideas, et cetera, et cetera. So again, I really do think these evaluations are always made inside of a project and that what would be good progress in one project is going to be bad reactionary or regressive politics in another project. Yeah. And, you know, I never thought these words would come out, out of my mouth, but I was really impressed with something that Chris Christie said recently <laughs> in relation well. to my friend Ron DeSantis, his relationship with Disney. Basically, I'm paraphrasing here, but basically Chris Christie said, what happened to the conservatives? Like, we were the ones who were always against government intervention into especially business and mm -hmm. government intervention into people's lives. And now look at, you know, this proliferation of government intervention is at the hands of these so-called conservatives who now show their face as being actual, not conservatives, but on the one hand, moving toward totalitarianism, and on the other hand, much more interested in the maintenance of power than in freedom of speech and the reduction of government intervention in our lives mm -hmm. and in the lives of our favorite theme parks. <laughs> so I'm just trying to get past the fact that Rick has now cited Heidegger and Chris Christie in this episode. <laughs> and DeSantis. <laughs> in this episode about progress. I'm trying to understand what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking some Dawn power wash and cleaning my microphone off right now. Because not sure what's going on either. I thought you were going to say that you're taking Dawn power wash to wash my mouth out. <laughs> also going to do that. You kiss your mother with that mouth that says Heidegger and Christie. <laughs> do you want more hotel bar sessions in your life? Is one episode a week not enough? Or do you just need something to do while avoiding eye contact with strangers on the bus? Well, you're in luck. 
You can follow us on Twitter at Hotel Bar Sessions. There you can also find the Twitter handles of each individual host. Follow your favorite or collect them all. Remember, parasocial is the new antisocial. So, Rick, in a previous episode on the history of philosophy, you made this claim that you don't think really that philosophy is about solving problems, which you also said at the top of this episode. And that was in the same context. It was in a context about a question of whether or not philosophy has progressed, whether or not we've solved some problems or made progress in some problems. I'd like to hear you kind of tease that out a little bit more now that we're actually talking about progress. So through incredible serendipity, this morning in my newsfeed was an article from a Francophone newspaper in Canada about the philosopher Patricia Churchland, who made her name as a philosopher with the book Neurophilosophy. And recently, she has been writing a lot on the relationship between brains and morality. Mm -hmm. I haven't read her recent work, but she's arguing that there are, I don't know the correct word here, chemicals. She points to oxytocin. I don't know if that's an enzyme or what the right word for it is, that this is directly related to our being moral or immoral. And in a sense, she thinks progress has been made. Like we're closer now to solving the problem of what the good is because we found out it's a function of the brain. Hmm. I want to say, I think you've misunderstood what humans are talking about when they talk about being good, doing the good, living a good life. When they talk about well-being, I think you've misunderstood and therefore you've solved a problem which never was really a problem in the first place. And so I think that the business of philosophy is not to address questions that can be solved empirically. It's not the job of philosophy to decide a priori, that means without any experience whatsoever, whether it's raining or not. It's not the job of philosophy to figure out any empirical question whatsoever. And so I think in that sense, if you ask then what is the job of philosophy, I would argue it's the job of asking questions. There might be some sort of progress in that maybe we get better at formulating our questions, but I don't think there's progress in the sense of answering questions and solving problems. And Lee, if I remember correctly, in that episode, you referred to the fact that, you know, you don't find any philosophers talking about phlogiston anymore or the ether or, you know, things like yeah, that. Yeah, I did say that. And I guess that's maybe still my objection to what you're saying now is that, yes, of course, it's not philosophy's primary job to answer empirical questions, but it certainly is philosophy's job to be informed by empirical progress or sure. progress in the empirical sciences, sure. which is why we don't talk about phlogiston anymore or the ethers anymore. And I'm not sure that I wouldn't call that progress, right? That we're not just making shit up anymore, <laughs> you know, that we're paying attention to what actually is out there that's true and false and that we can make informed evidential claims about. And I think I get the spirit of what you're saying, but maybe I think that the way that you're phrasing it is too strong, that it's it's not philosophy's job to answer any questions, but only to ask questions. I just don't think that's true. I would say that the two questions that we should ask when it comes to 
progress, as we've been discussing, is progress towards what and progress for who. Yeah. Anytime someone says progress has been made, we have to talk about what is the goal and who does that goal serve. You know, Spinoza says a lot of our notions of good, bad, and I would say progressive and regressive, they presuppose a project. And they work well when we're clear on what that project is, right? Like Spinoza says, like if you see someone building a house and they're not done yet, you can say that that isn't complete because you understand they're building a house. But if you don't understand what someone's building or what they're doing, it's harder and harder to evaluate. And I think the other thing that I would add in the Spinoza point is that we are creatures that are teleological. We act towards an end in view. We're always trying to do something, accomplish something. But we live in a universe that does not act towards an end in view. And a lot of our confusion stems from our attempt to map the world onto our own individual intents. And that's often what's at stake in a lot of claims about progress is that we are acting as if the world functions in the same way that I might make progress toward getting dinner ready and cut up things and do other sort of things. We act as if the world in all of its brutality, that's why I mentioned the cutting up thing, right? All the destruction is aiming towards some end, but that's just not the way the world works. It is the way we work. But it's not the way the world works. Mm-hmm. But haven't we progressed beyond Spinoza, Jason? <laughs> haven't we? Jason's always going to say no to that. <laughs> always. <laughs> no, but I think that in many ways proves my point. And just on the ether and phlogiston point, and I agree with you wholeheartedly, Lee, especially those of us trained in so-called continental philosophy are the worst offenders of not being familiar with science as it is practiced today. You know, some of the fundamental positions of biology, chemistry, neuroscience, and physics, and so on. And that's a fairly recent development in philosophy. So Kant and Hegel were pretty much up to date on the science of their day, including the whack theories they had about various things. Like Kant's theory that the people on Jupiter must be really tall because the gravity on Jupiter is minimal gravity. He got that wrong because he thought gravity had something to do with the distance from the sun rather than the mass of the planet. But that was the going science of his day. And then he also thought they could work all day without growing tired. And therefore, they were the happiest of all rational beings, (laughs) as only Kant could argue. So I agree with you wholeheartedly. We have done a bad job, especially in continental philosophy keeping up at least a passing familiarity with science. And Lee, you probably run into this more than I do, that then you find an awful lot of people who you think might otherwise be smart saying really dumb things about robots or AI (laughs) or social platforms or so on, because they just don't have the foggiest clue. So I agree with all of that. But the question of where we are, how we got there, and is this a good place to be? Those, I think, are all really good philosophical questions. And I think all of those philosophical questions are, in fact, prevented or were prevented from asking them the moment we start talking about progress or its opposite. Then the story is just inevitable. It was always going here. We couldn't but be here right now. It couldn't happen otherwise. Or as Hegel says, the real world is as it ought to be. So let me try to offer a kind of olive branch here. So I think that (laughs) there are some areas in philosophy where it is 
entirely appropriate and good to spend time, as we say in the continental tradition, problematizing something <laughs> or calling into question or right. investigating what it's toward or whatever, you know, and not really trying to propose an answer, but propose better ways of asking or more possibilities to consider, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think that because in some limited areas that is productive work, that that doesn't mean that in other areas we don't want to put forward answers to questions. And I also don't necessarily think that in the areas where answers are not being put forward, that we couldn't still say that progress is made in even the asking of the questions. I'll just give you an example. We've talked about this so many times on this podcast, but you know, the way that we talk about what is good politically, we've got entirely new discourses, you know, critical race theory, critical gender studies, trans theory that help us ask better questions about what is good politically, which I don't think, you know, anybody's ready to solve. And we're going to pack up our bags and take a victory lap, as you say, because we found the answer. But would I say that progress has been made? Definitely. Yeah, and I, I don't know what the way to continue with the notion of an olive branch, to accept the olive branch, to to hold it together. <laughs> to eat the olive, to make some, what do, what do you make out of olives? Olive oil? Yeah. <laughs> well, or to put a dove on top of that olive branch. Okay. <laughs> I think another way in which philosophy has made progress, but holy cow, not nearly as much as we ought to, is the recognition that voices have been actively excluded from our conversation. And so Mm -hmm. for most of the history of philosophy in the West, the voices of women have been excluded. Certainly the voices of people of color have been excluded. Frequently the voices of working class folk have been excluded. And I think we have made genuine progress in recognizing that the enterprise of philosophy is made better by orders of magnitude, by taking their ways of asking questions seriously. So I do think there is progress. Let me just say, just as a matter of empirical fact, that you know one might say the entire university as a whole is pretty white duty, like filled with white dudes. <laughs> and humanities tend to be the whitest and dutiest of all of the fields. And in philosophy, we are the worst. And so there, yeah, we've made a little bit of progress, but holy cow, come on, we could do so much better in that area. So I think, Lee, you're right that there are ways in which the discipline progresses. My friend Chris Long just gave me this little quip that I think sums up a lot of difficulties I have. He said that he's trying to get his administration to stop valuing what we can measure and start measuring what we value. Mm-hmm. What I'm worried about is what measures do we use to mark progress? And I think the measures you're pointing out, I think those are better measures to talk about progress than whether we've solved the problem of what knowledge is and how it happens. Yeah. And although I do think that there I don't think, I know that there are people in professional philosophy, for example, who probably do believe that philosophy would be better if there were no women or black people or people from other countries or other religions in it. 
I don't think that you could say that in the philosophical community without people saying not, I don't think that's progress, but that's not true. Right. Like you're just talking about phlogistons now. Right. There is a certain amount of progress on racism in the United States that can be measured by the fact that many people on the right at least they know that they shouldn't say racist things out loud. Mm -hmm. And so there's a minimal sense of progress there. I thought Tucker Carlson got fired, apparently. I thought that was because of the C word. Oh, I don't know. I, I just was referring to the fact that apparently there are texts that haven't been disclosed that everyone who saw them like, oh my God, if you saw these texts, and it always raises the question, given what he says on the air, what could Tucker Carlson possibly say that would go beyond that? But anyways. You know what he said. He said, Dawn Power Wash is not a good product. <laughs> That was a bridge too Beyond far. Beyond the pale. <laughs> I, I just want to go back briefly to what Rick was saying earlier about continental philosophers being bad at science. And since we're doing a kind of sequel to History of Philosophy episode, <laughs> yeah, right. a little bit here, I mean, Althusser says, quoting Lenin somewhere, that in philosophy, we tend to bend the stick in order to straighten it. And there's this tendency to go to one extreme and to another extreme. And mm -hmm. I think that part of what's happening with progress in general is that philosophy in the 19th century, Western European philosophy, really swallowed the progress pill, right? And believed in this march epitomized by Hegel. And I think that some of what happened in the 20th was a shift in the other direction. I mean, yeah. you get, I mean, yeah. I think Heidegger really brought in the other narrative, the falling, the forgetting of being, etc. And now I think there have been attempts to kind of shift things back and to avoid either the technologically driven notion of everything's progressing or the other side, everything is regressing. And to me, the only possible middle ground between those two is a very difficult middle ground because it really involves trying to understand every given conjuncture, every given moment in terms of its own combination of progressive or regressive aspects. I mean, as we were talking about in our episode on the university, there's a weird way in which even the racism of some of these bills against critical race theory, et cetera, they borrow the language of anti-racism. And even censorship borrows the language of being anti-indoctrination, right? Like people aren't even willing to say that like trans people are bad. They want to say that. But then they have to say instead, oh, they're corrupting the children. They're dangerous. Dangerous. And so there is this weird way in which the regressions show us a little bit of how we progress. But that doesn't mean they're not still regressions at the same time. I agree wholeheartedly, first of all. And this gets to the heart of why I think progress and the use of this term is really interesting. That, as you point out, Europe in the 19th century really bit hard on the progress bit. And everything was seen as progress. There was moral progress. There was artistic progress. There was political progress. And then Europe hits World War I and World War II. And I think what that forced philosophers and artists and authors and so on to come to grips with was this very thing we used to be calling progress brought us to the extreme mass warfare of World War One and the genocide of World War Two. This then ushers in a real worry about progress in general. And I think you're right. Maybe we're swinging back in the other direction now.
Well, you can help us make progress in reaching our goal of funding this podcast by finding us on Patreon, patreon.com, Hotel Bar Sessions. There you can support us at many different levels according to how well you've progressed in being able to make enough money to make a living. <laughs> and we can tie all those progress together and further the march of history, which, as we know, advances by the number of podcasts available. <laughs> <laughs> But before we go and to figure out whether or not we've made any progress, I want to give everyone a chance to say how their thinking has progressed over the course of this episode. So, Rick, how have we progressed in our discussion of progress? Well, in many ways, our conversation has brought to light and exemplified the very weirdness I find in the notion of progress itself. You know, we've gone back and forth. This progress is okay. This progress isn't okay. Maybe we shouldn't talk about progress at all, but we have to talk about progress. And I just think it's a very slippery term that is used in many contexts, and I'm suspicious of many of the uses of it. And I think our conversation shows that we have good reason to be suspicious of some of the uses of the term progress. So um, this won't come as a surprise to you, but I'm going to use Don Powerwash for my <laughs> last couple of thoughts. Much like when you have a dirty, greasy, caked on food pan and you spray Dawn Powerwash on it, progress is being made that you can't see. <laughs> and you often have to wait a while until you can see what progress is being made. But also sometimes it's not. And you can't just assume that progress is being made until the end, until you see how how much of that grease and caked on food that you can <laughs> scrape off? Jason, what about you? Well, I'll say that I think that progressive as a political sort of identity to me really is a watered down version of being revolutionary. Mm -hmm. And I think the watering down has to do with progressives like to believe that they're swimming with the current, as Walter Benjamin said, as if they're part of what is already happening. Whereas I think to be a revolutionary is to suggest that none of this stuff is guaranteed. Yeah. And none of this stuff is going to happen on its own. You know, you have to make revolution rather than assume progress. And to some extent, I think we have to reclaim what it means to think about being revolutionary because being progressive is never guaranteed. I completely agree with that. I think being revolutionary is starting a new project yeah. in which nice. whatever the measures of progress were in the old project are just no longer relevant. Love that. And I don't know if it's progress or regress that a huge part of our economy is a gig economy, but I'll get an Uber. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm going to go wash some dishes. Talk to you guys next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.